Welcome to the good, the bad, and the sequel Q&A. My name's Doug. So the next sequel that we are going to be covering is perfect for baseball. That's actually starting today when you're listening to this. Major League 3 or Major League Back to the Minors. This is one of those touchstone sequels for me because this is one of those VHS tapes that I watched over and over again as a kid, just like with Major League Two that I had two copies of for some reason, but love those movies. Scott Bakula coaching that minor league team that's going up against, you know, the big league Minnesota Twins, which who cares? It's the Twins. It doesn't make sense because the whole franchise is the Indians, but I don't mind. I don't mind. It's coached by uh, none other than the great Ted McGinley, Jefferson Darcy on Married with Children. But what I love best is it led to this week's interview with cinematographer Charles Pappert. It just so happens there's so many times that me and Jamie get somebody that's on the show that we're lucky enough that says yes to chat with me is that what we're covering is like a touchstone in their career. You know, Charles has gone on to do so much as a cinematographer, Scrubs, Key and Peele, Garfunkel and Oates, who I love. They're both amazing. You know, he's working on Keenan right now on NBC and just so much more. But Steady Cam Operator is where he started. Besides American History X, which is his first movie that he worked on, this Major League Three was his first, you know, studio film. So if you're listening, you want to see some cool photos, go on to sequelsonly.com forward slash Charles Papper. I'll put the links in the notes. Really cool photos that he sent me over from behind the scenes because this is his first big role, you know, big movie. But man, Charles story has NYU involved. And like he says in the interview, that great NYU story where people left and they were very successful in the film industry. So he can add himself to that list. He talked about the great films he worked on, Office Space, man, shows like Scrubs and just so much more. And he did this really cool 20, uh, you know, 48 hour film contest that he ran for so many years right at the beginning of his career when he started getting super busy. So, man, he loves to work. And then we also talked about, which I never thought I'd be able to shoehorn into an interview, my love, because my dad's love of Foreigner's Urgent, because Charles is a saxophone player, so that was great. And just so much more. Anything that we talk about, I put the links into the episode notes, so you'll be able to see in there his website, charlespapper.com, and also his invention that he made for the Steadicam, because that's uh, that's what his... Uh, Blood is, when you think about it, starting his career, Steady Cam Operator. He was training people in the film industry steady how to use a Steady Cam before he was even in it. So that's how well he knew it and how much he loved it. He invented what's called a ZG grip, and you can add it to your Steady Cam so you can turn it into a handheld. Guys thought of it all. Inventor, saxophone player, cinematographer, on every great sketch go. Key and Peele. We talk about the sequel, Doctor. I could talk about this forever, but you're going to love when we talk about mementos because that's one of my favorite questions to ask people. And man, it's a really funny one with a sort of unhappy ending, I guess. But uh, man, you're going to love this. Do me a favor. If you're first time here, welcome. Please subscribe, rate us wherever you listen, follow us on all social media at sequels only, and just, you know, share with your friends, you know? Even ex-girlfriends, ex-husbands, 
who cares? Just tell them, hey, this is really cool. And they'll be like, hey, I think the restraining order covers podcast recommendations. But then just send me the send me the info and I'll I'll give it to our lawyer on retainer. But uh yeah. So without further ado, here is cinematographer Charles Pappert. Nice to meet you, Charles. This is great, man. Yeah. I love talking to all different types of people and I love hearing I really love the origin stories. So like I know the one person you mentioned when you were looking Hey, who did he talk to? And Steven Poster, mm-hmm. who like, I guess, uh, the rage carry too. I love hearing about how people start, like not just about the credits. I think it's so cool. Those photos are amazing that you just sent over, which cool. are, yeah, God, that's so cool that you have those. Well, you know, it's funny because as when we get into it and we start talking about it, that was my, that was my first studio movie. So I took so many more photos oh, okay. than a few years later. And certainly now. Because it's just kind of like, oh, I'm doing a movie, you know? So it was, uh, I, I have a lot yeah. from that movie. Yeah. So that's kind of fun. I get that from a lot of people. I, I always ask that question at the end, like, hey, you know, what are some keepsakes? So it's like, the, I guess those touchstone moments, like when, you know, it's the first time, like you said, your studio movie, when I take all these photos. And then now if you're on a studio movie, you're just like, all right, see you guys later. <laughs> I know, I because everyone else is taking pictures, and I'm just like, yeah, I'm good. Especially with the yeah. actors, I so rarely do that. So, but anyway, we can get yeah. into all that stuff. Uh, cool, totally, man. So, Charles, like I mentioned, the origin story. So, growing up, what part of the country did you grow up in? Uh, well, I grew up mostly in Boston area, Brooklyn, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. I'm a Jersey uh, guy. Oh, okay. Well, that's on the eastern seaboard, sure. Certainly compared to California. We're the same people, Northeast. Yeah, for sure. Dunkin' Donuts. (laughs) But uh, uh, yeah, my family moved from the UK when I was six to Brookline. And so I kind of grew up a little bit of an English kid until uh, high school or so. Somewhere around age 12 is when I got bitten by the filmmaking bug for a number of reasons. I just tried a couple of experiences in a row where I just went, I think originally I wanted to be sort of a broadcast guy. Like I didn't, my exposure in Boston was more towards TV. So I was like, I want to put a camera on my shoulder and run around and shoot news. But within a couple of years, I I realized that storytelling was more of the the thing that I wanted to do and be involved in the film side. What was it at the age of 12? Was it just like, did you see like a cameraman doing like a live shot in Boston or locally or... Yeah, it was kind of a version of that. My mom was friends with a director at one of the local TV stations, and I got to visit a live truck and see all that happen. And that was really oh, cool. Nice. And we had, um, uh, you know, access to some very rudimentary video gear at the at my school system, and I realized I, just, I, I was into it. You know, so it was it was kind of more that it was the video side. I did a little bit of Super Eight filmmaking, but I think the expense of that was what kind of threw me off having no money at all it was kind of like wait it costs how much to buy film and process it so i didn't really get into still photography for the same reason but video was kind of free in a way you know if you could get your hands in the equipment you could just shoot video and so actually it's funny because the earliest part of my career was very video based and then later when i got especially once i moved to la it was just like the big time 35 millimeter panavision all the fancy stuff and then when we transitioned to digital which is really video I was all set. I was like, I've already done this. That was the first half of my career. Yeah, so that's true. It was kind of bookended. Yeah. It was funny. The tech came around for me. 
<laughs> so at age of 12, you fall for it. This is what I want to do. What was like the first steps that you took? Like when you got to like 17, 18, like, where'd you go? Like, what was that next step? Yeah. It, uh, well, I went to film school. I went to NYU for uh, my freshman year of uh, oh, college. Nice. I just, I dropped out after freshman year. And a major reason for that was I got very impatient and started chasing down the big feature sets in New York and hanging out on them. I befriended a cameraman and got to hang out in the set of Ghostbusters and uh, worked on a few uh, films like that. That was the most famous of them, but it was a really amazing That's experience. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, as a teenager, I'm getting to, to check out, you know, the, the big time. So it was, it had a huge influence on me, but it also kind of pointed, I got very impatient and I dropped out of school to really start pursuing the work. <laughs> that was your hunger. You wanted it so bad. That's why. Yeah. How'd you, how'd you meet the cameraman? Just like through NYU? Was he a teacher at NYU or did something there? No, it was me just being a bratty uh, kind of go-getter. <laughs> I cold called the guy and did not expect any kind of response, but uh, you know, I guess the way I introduced myself, he was interested enough to let me come and visit him. And he said, yeah, come on down to the set tomorrow morning. I'm shooting at the New York public library. And that was ghostbusters and, uh, got to meet him and see the, the film equipment. He was a steady cam operator, which I, you let me know if we need to explain what that is exactly. But I was interested in steady cam. I just had never seen it before. So I really wanted to see it. And if he was doing it in a phone booth or in an alley, I would have been just as excited, but it turned out to be this huge yeah. movie with, you know, people I'd seen on, in other movies, which was kind of cool. So, you know, meeting, you know, actually. <laughs> yeah, like, so Steadicam, you can explain it, but that's the shot. You're talking about the shot when he's weaving in the library, like seeing the ghost, like that approach, like that shot. Well, uh, the scene that we're shooting that day was a very low key one for Steadicam, but you know, there's a okay. lot of, there's a certain, yeah. Uh, going through the stacks in the library, that was a different, that was actually an LA shoot for that. But uh, Steadicam was invented in the mid seventies. Cameron named uh, Garrett Brown in Philadelphia invented this device that you strap on your body that allows you to walk with the camera and, and takes out all the footsteps. So by 10 years, almost 10 years later was when I first got to see it. Uh, there was a number of people doing it, although it was still very specialized. And I fell in love with the thing and said, that's what I want to do is become a Steadicam operator. And it took me a few years after that to be able to save enough money to buy a really old one and just start running around with the thing. But that was my career for the next 25 years. Yep. Wow. What would you say is the first movie? Because I always, whenever I watch documentaries, like whenever they talk about Halloween, that was like one of the first, not like yeah. that was a big, that was an independent movie, but that was like one of the first big movies to use it. And that's what made it even more eerie, I guess, like that POV yes. of Michael in that movie. Yeah. Carpenter really grabbed onto it early on. He was using a slightly different version of it called a Panaglide, same idea. But the first shot that I think caught everyone's attention was in Rocky. There was a, a couple of movies just before that that came out. Uh, Bound for Glory was the first film that used it. That's a bit of an obscure film now. But Rocky, the run up the steps to, in the art museum and the montage, of course, is a classic. Uh, you know, yeah. it's an all time classic scene. And that was a very early steady cam shot. Um, and as a 10 year old, I do have. I remember watching the movie and there was something about that shot that at that point I couldn't 
pinpoint that kind of felt different and special to me. A few years after that, once I was, I had, you know, gotten to the grand old age of like 12, uh, and was so much more sophisticated, maybe 14, um, I went to see The Shining. And I was seeing shots in The Shining that I know I'd never seen at that point, the chase through the hedge maze, the big following the big wheel uh, through the hotel lobby. I said, I know I've never seen anything quite like that before. And that turned out to be Steadicam also. So those were the uh, the the sort of early influential shots. And at that point, it started to become a more uh, regularly used tool, not quite as exotic. Yeah. Wow. So you get an old one, you buy it, you use, you practice it for a while. So what was your, what were you doing at that time? Did you head out to LA already? Like in like the mid eighties, were you out there already? If only I had, but I didn't, I stuck around the East coast. I was in still kind of went back to Boston after I quit school, uh, was working initially as a, like a production assistant, kind of figuring things out. And then I started working a rental house where they had a steady cam and I was practicing on it. And then for a few years, I got a job shooting local commercials and corporate things, which is actually really cool because I got to um, shoot and edit. These things would go on the air. They were very small in scope. They were very basic, and a lot of them were really corny. But I learned the craft of filmmaking. Uh, it was like boot camp. Uh, they would hand me a script. I was like 22 years old. I'd go out and have one guy helping me and make this thing and then edit it myself. And then it would go on air. So that was really cool. So I did that for a few years. And after that, I had enough money to buy this old crappy Steadicam and uh, kind of go freelance. And I've been freelance ever since, which is now 32 years, which is astonishing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. In between then, you're doing the corporate gigs. The first credit that you have, like the official credit, I'm sure there's something before it. The first thing on there is the Drew Carey show in 95. Was that yeah. the first time that you stepped on a set? No, that was, that's confusing. IMDb, uh, I know is what you're looking at. And IMDb is a They're little not right funky. Ever. It's because I think that's when that show started. When I went on Drew Carey, it was the last season. Oh, okay. So I would say that would have been late 90s or early oh, wow. 2000s okay. yeah um yeah 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 the in boston i did an indie film or two certainly was doing a lot of commercials i wasn't able to get on any of the big shows that came in town or even the smaller shows that came anything that came to boston i tried to get on but they were like yeah you don't have the credits and i was getting very frustrated because at that point i'd been working pretty hard and getting decent I was working also as a cinematographer and, uh, you know, in smaller things, but I kept bumping my head up against the, you don't have the credits kid. We don't want to talk to you. Yeah. And I started teaching Steadicam at a few different places around the country. There are these workshops that have been going on since the eighties where groups of professional camera persons come together uh, to learn the craft of Steadicam. And I had been invited to, I'd taken that in 85 and somewhere in the early nineties, I got invited to come back and teach assistant teach. Wow. And that started pulling me out to LA where they'd fly me out to teach. And I met some other operators uh, that were local guys around my age who I got to be friendly with. And before you know it, they're sort of throwing me gigs that are on the East coast that they couldn't do, or for union reasons, they weren't able to. And starting in 96, things really started to pop for me. Um, I did my first show in LA, uh, which was American History X, was kind oh, of my wow. first big credit, yeah, that I got to operate on that movie. And 
it really just came about be- almost by a fluke. I happened to be the first guy in the door to interview on it because I was visiting that weekend and, you know, sleeping on my buddy, uh, Dave Kamides, who was the steady cam operator on ER, uh, sleeping on a sofa. <laughs> and he was like, Hey, I got thrown this script. I can't do it. You want to go meet on it? I walk in the door expecting as usual to have, yes, kid, you don't have the credits. And they're like, no, you'll do. Got hired just like that. And I'm like, wait, what? I've been killing myself to try and get to the big time. And I, I'm in LA sleeping on a guy's sofa for the weekend and I get a movie. What? But uh, that's how that works, I guess. So three weeks later, you know, I was, I rented an apartment and flew out with my uh, equipment and was, was suddenly on this, on this movie and a crazy movie. It was, Um, I mean, it was an amazing thing to be part of uh, what obviously has you know kind of stood the test of time. People still talking about that film, but also for me, I was trying not to let anyone know that this was my first time working on anything legit, you know, <laughs> with real yeah. actors that I grew up with. You know, it's like, uh, huh? Uh, movie stars? What? Yeah. <laughs> you gotta like hide the emotions and act like you've been there before. But it's yeah. so funny, like you said, like the experience. It's like any job. It's like they're like. All right, we want to hire you for this entry level, first time doing it, but we want you to have experience. And it's like, yeah, wait, you're looking for somebody with no experience, but you want experience. And yeah. the fact that you knew the steady cam, which, and you were teaching people how to use it. So it, it's crazy that it took that long, but it, it's great that it worked out that way. And I feel like it's like serendipitous that you're like visiting and you get it. Yeah. For your buddy, just saying ridiculous. Hey. I mean, th- there's nothing that's more cliche than the sleeping on someone's sofa when you first come to LA thing. But <laughs> that's literally what yeah. I remember. I was literally like lying on the sofa, probably in my underwear, and, and he's like on his way to work. And he's like, Hey, dude, threw the script at me, and I just sat there and read it. I mean, it's uh, it's almost a, if you put that into a movie, it would be like, Yeah, yeah, you know, that might get redlined as you know, try a little harder, do something less obvious. <laughs> How do you prepare for an interview like that? So you're going in as a, you know, as a camera operator, like what is when you're looking at the script, how do you go into, I know that was your, that was your first one really for a yeah. major studio. Yeah, that was. Yeah. <laughs> it was actually a large indie film that, that one it, new line picked it up. Well, no new line, new line was making it. I'm sorry, it, but it was still new line was indie ish, I guess it was then, I guess. Yeah. It wasn't a small picture. I mean, it wasn't huge, but I mean, how did I prepare for it? I didn't expect, I, I didn't prepare anything other than I'd read the script. I walked in there with my reel on a VHS like we had back in those days and my resume that I Xeroxed, expecting to hand them off and walk away and never hear about it again. And instead the producer, the line producer, which is the, um, well, I won't go to the descriptions of it. It's not really that critical, but the guy who met me, said, well, the main producer and the director are here. Let's go watch your reel together. Now, that doesn't happen. It's never happened since. It just doesn't work that way. But this movie was like a series of things that are w- were somewhat bizarre and abnormal. And if anyone is inclined to actually Google the making of American History X, the stories are Hollywood legend. Oh, man, I got to check them out. Not so much uh, the shooting, but what happened in post. Um, the battles with the director and the studio and Ed Norton taking over the edit. And it's a fascinating story. It really should be its own movie. I'll check it out. Um, There should be a documentary on it. But 
um, yeah, so I literally find myself walking into this room to meet the director of this movie and the producer and sit down and they're playing the tape right in front of me. <laughs> Extra- very unusual situation. And the guy actually, the, the director hired me almost instantly, not because I think my reel was so great, but because he was an odd character and he didn't really seem to care that much. I, I don't, I, I can't really explain it. I mean, he literally hired me five seconds into the reel. He turned around and said, English, uh, Tony K. And he turns around and goes, yeah, right, you're hired. And he starts laughing maniacally. And then there's a silence in the room where me and the producer are looking at each other. And I'm like, with my eyes going, is he serious? And the producer's going, I don't know. you know. And so the producer said, well, I'll tell you what, let's just watch the rest of the tape. Okay, fine. And then at the end of it, yeah, he turns on, yeah, no, you're hired. I mean, Yeah. <laughs> Again, if you wrote that into a script, you'd get redlined by somebody saying no. It's too far fetched. So, anyway, so that was uh, that was my first my first big show, and then then things started to snowball. I got, I went back home to Boston, all excited. I think I think I have the order correct, although I'm not quite sure which came first exactly anymore because this is 25 plus years ago. But yeah, I did a couple of other things. There were some shows back east. And then I moved to L.A. And one of the shows that I did as I was in the cusp of moving was Major League Back to the Minors. Yes. I love that. I think I love that movie so much. I just think it's so yeah. cool that who they put together for that movie. Like, I love Scout Bakula. Uh-huh. Like, I think he is like the nicest guy. And I interviewed another cinematographer, Ron Schmidt. And uh, he was he was working with him on NCIS, and then he worked with him like in the nineties, the two thousands, and like more recently. But I just think he's like one of the coolest guys, and like a guy you like root for in Hollywood. And he's had and the career backs it up, like yeah, thirty four forty plus years of doing it. Yeah, he he was he's very likable on camera. He was certainly very affable on set. I think he was a good choice for that uh, for that franchise. I mean, they obviously took a very yeah. different turn. By the for the third movie than the first two, but you know I think it was you know I think it was a good choice. It was a good a good center point of that movie. And Ted McGinley, and then moving away from the Indians and the Twins. I think that's so cool. Is that something obviously wouldn't happen? Like having the major league club versus the minor league club, but it has like the good mixture of like the former you know the people from the yeah. you know, the first two movies and uh, yeah. So I think that's so cool that that is like the it's so funny when I talk to people sometimes it's the movies that either we're covering or I mention are like these touchstones. Like that was your first, you know, made, you know, studio. And those photos are so cool. Those behind the scene photos that you, that you took. I yeah. Love that. Yeah. So that, that was, um, again, I'm trying to I'm making sure I don't get the math wrong. Cause I know that was my first studio film. So maybe it's because I'm calling American history X an indie, even though it was sizable. Um, yeah. Th- Major League Three was um, was a studio picture, and that and I, then I did a few in the row after that, and I was kind of like, oh, this is what I do now. I, I I've I've made it to the big time. We're shooting with Panavision cameras, and <laughs> I'm going around the country. I'm flying around the country and shooting different movies. Couple a year, great, awesome. <laughs> but uh, it still felt pretty exciting, you know, to be an A camera Steadicam yeah. operator at age thirty after being told I wasn't enough a year earlier in Boston, you know, when smaller movies than that came to town, it, it felt good. And again, it, 
it's it's not really like I was so great or anything. It's just that I didn't quite have the connection in. So walking in cold or or when they didn't know me, I couldn't get anywhere. But because I was a referral from somebody to somebody else and I you know, someone someone just sort of went, "Okay, fine." And then all of a sudden I was in. Uh, I'd broken through that ceiling very unexpectedly. But the good news was I seemed to be able to do the job. They didn't fire me, so it worked out, you know. <laughs> and I just kind of learned very quickly what it was like to work on a crew with 75 people and be on location and what, you know, what it meant to do all those things. I kind of faked my way through it for a bit, but I think a lot of people do that, you know. I mean, the way you're supposed to do it is that you work your way up from the bottom position all the way through the department. So I had jumped about four steps yeah. to some degree, but you know, I, I I'd kind of kept my eyes open enough to know what those jobs were. So I wasn't, I wasn't making too many mistakes. I think, I hope, I don't know. I mean, I watched the film uh, before, <laughs> before we chatted, I watched it today cause I, I hadn't seen it in yeah. so long to remind myself. And there's, because I'm the camera operator, I can actually, identify my work in a way and kind of go, Oh, that was okay. And other things I'm like, "Eh, it's not, yeah, you got better quickly within the next two years. It got a lot better. I saw some mistakes, but it's okay. You know, this is what happens. Uh, I I had some things to learn. I mean, if that's great. So you have like this, you have your own little, like, uh, like calling card, like signature that you could tell that it's you. Not that it's so much that I, I look, if you, I know that it's me because I worked on it. You know, so I remember yeah, yeah. some of the shots I don't quite remember doing and others I remember doing very well, uh, very specifically. The hard ones are the ones you remember, the ones that are complicated or the ones that were your idea. I mean, some of the things I remember more specifically than anything, there's a lot of shots of the bus driving through down a country road or across a bridge, a, a beautiful twilight shot. I got sent out to shoot those which was actually kind of a big deal for me because the camera operator is at a certain level. That's a cinematographer. That's the next step up. It was a splinter, what we call a splinter unit, which is, you know, the main unit cinematographer sticks around and shoots. Then they say, go off and shoot this other stuff. You take a small crew with you and you wait for the light to be right. And you figure out the, you know, blah, blah, blah. But so, yeah, I did those. And I saw those in the movie like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Cause that's the job I have that's now. Awesome. I'm a cinematographer, I'm a little bit more engaged yeah. in, in a way thinking about my, the fact that, again, I was new to all of this, not from having done the work, but having done it in so much of a smaller scale and then jumping up, doing it for a studio. The good news was at that time, I was so full of ambition that I'm like, well, of course, you're going to have me do that. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's just funny. You know, did you did you always have that in the back of your mind? Like, is it when you were able to do like those corporate and you were cutting everything and you were pretty much you and that other guy. Did you ever always have aspirations to do cinematography or even direct? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, all nice. of it. Yeah. No, I, I, I always wanted to do, to get into, you know, the legit production world. I didn't know at that point, New York or LA, but I was just like, no, I want to work on movies. Um, I want to be shooting movies and, and yeah, the directing thing that's, I had an interesting relationship over the years cause I've done it as long as I've done anything else. And I have directed yeah. a number of things over the years, but every time it sort of seemed like the time to make that my focus, I got pulled back into the cinematography side because I really do have a great love for, you know, cameras and lighting and what you do with those. In a way, it's kind of like 
for some people you you direct because that's all you really can do or want to do and you know uh, you, you're not an expert in another aspect of it that's the thing that you do and the problem i had was i did other things and it, yeah it kind of kept me it kept me doing those things um so it, it's interesting to me it was always about being sort of this full service filmmaker that you have a, a number of disciplines that all kind of connect to each other so as a cinematographer part of my brain is thinking like a director you know, and so when I direct, it's hard yeah. for me to switch off that part of the brain, you know? <laughs> so when did, the, what was the first time you did like a cinematography, like that was a job that you did that it changed for you? Because it seems like at this point in your career, like getting those studios, you get that experience. So it just kept like steamrolling after that when it, when it comes to, you know, doing the steady cam, were you just getting referrals yeah. on referrals? Because if you look on your IMDb, you're doing like, God, you're working five or six shows at least a year. I sort of, let's see, within a couple of years, I'd sort of found myself sliding sideways from features more into television. I should mention that, you know, the year after Major League, I did um, Office Space, which was, I yes. mean, obviously that's a classic movie. And that was a lot of yeah. fun. But within a year or so of that, I, I I was starting to get into the TV side. I did a, a few stints here and there on ER, on West Wing, which were two incredible shows to be a Steadicam operator on. It was a real sweet yeah. spot at the, at the time. And then I was kind of day playing, as we call it, just jumping around from show to show, doing a week here, a week there. I wasn't necessarily engaged in working nine months a year on the same show. I kind of wanted to keep myself a little more nimble and I was shooting projects on the side and by shooting, I mean, as the cinematographer, not just the, the camera operator and directing a little bit too. One of the shows that I did stick around with for a period of time was Scrubs. I did two, the first two seasons of Scrubs because Scrubs was really fun uh, to work on. And yeah. I got, I, I got very involved on that particular show and how we shot it, even as a camera operator, uh, I'd work with the directors pretty closely and it was a really good time. Uh, and it was exciting to be there from the beginning of the, you know, from the pilot and see this, this little plucky comedy just kind of explode and become a hit was, was pretty neat. <laughs> so we had a good time on that. But then after that, I started focusing on a few different ventures. I co-created something called instant films, which was a 48 hour filmmaking festival not That's to be awesome. confused no with, i was gonna have to ask you about that yeah i'm going by the chronology here so yeah the the concept of 48 hour filmmaking happened simultaneously on the east and west coasts within weeks of each other the 48 hour film festival that's the most famous version of it started on the east coast and i brought the idea to a theater company that i, where I knew some people and suggested the same idea about the same time and, and ours was smaller in scope and more curated and it didn't grow nationally the way the other one did. So, you know, we did ours for a while and then and then kind of moved on. But that was a very interesting experience to to help run the whole organization and also to direct. Uh, I directed about twelve shorts, and it was real boot camp the way we did it. So that that was uh, you know that was my, my early two thousand distraction <laughs> that didn't really make me any money. Yeah, but, but and kind that's of still early cool. on. You just started. Yeah. You had to think American History X, that's like 96, 596, right? Mm -hmm. Around yeah. 96. So like yeah. that many years later, usually people are still getting their feet wet in a job. And you're like, you know what? Let me take apart all of my time and, and do this, 
you know, because that's got to take up a lot of your time running that. I'm sure you had to pick the judges, the format and all that. Yeah, there there was a lot to be done there. And especially in the early days, I was working on scrubs at the time and I would work until whatever time Friday night, get up early Saturday morning, be handed the script, handed the actors and have to shoot this film for the rest of the weekend with virtually no sleep. Then we'd have the screening Sunday night. And because I was part of the organization, I'd sort of be there to the very end. There was a party afterwards and blah, blah, blah. And then I'd get, you know, maybe I got a total of about 10 hours sleep the whole weekend at best. (laughs) I'm probably not even that much, you know, over like 72 hours and then go right back to work again Monday morning, which, you know, (laughs) I managed to pull that off at 35. By the time I think I hit 40 or so, I felt the difference. (laughs) And I was like, I don't think I can do this anymore. No, and I know. At the same time as working. But <laughs> it was really fun while it lasted. Yeah, we we did some great stuff. And we had wonderful, uh, I mean, some of the names that were involved in instant films were were pretty wild when you look at what they're doing now. Like James Gunn wrote for us a few wow. times and I was trying to talk him into directing. And he was like, nah, not because he was too busy, because he was just like, that sounds kind of difficult. I don't know. I'm not going to do that. I just want to, I'll just write for you guys, you know. <laughs> So, you know, another piece. Yeah, he was writing for uh, Troma and Lloyd Kaufman like four years before that, five years before that. Oh, yeah. That. No, he That's knew what funny. it was like to to scrap and do low budget filmmaking. But, uh, but he, he, it's funny how I was like, come on, you can do this, James. He's like, nah. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Flash forward. And then, yeah, that's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, what would you say is like the big difference? Obviously, the same cameras per se, right? Like, but what's the, what's the big difference between like TV and film, like when you're setting up everything? Well, it depends on the budget you're talking about. But even at the network level, compared to a decently budgeted studio film, which is more apples, apples and apples, apples to apples, yeah. TV is a lot faster. There's a lot more work to be done per day. Um, traditionally, in most TV situations, there's X number of days to shoot an episode. And you cannot go long. You have X amount of work to shoot per day and you can't, you don't get to make it up later. And on a larger feature, yeah. yes, there's work that's planned, but unless you're getting booted out of a location, if you, what, you shoot until whatever time they decide to wrap and then you pick it up again the next day, wherever you are. Um, it's not universally the case across the board, but it is generally not quite as manic. TV is a little manic. It's, it's, a, it's a fast moving machine. Yeah. And you did it from there. That's when you like, there were so many shows that you worked on. TV really took over from there on out, right? You obviously did still did features every so often, but it was mostly TV. Yeah. As a steady cam operator, um, I, I was working as a camera operator until uh, most of the work until 2010. I'd been DPing, which is the biggest, you know, director photography or DOP as I think as we call it now, which is interchangeable with cinematographer as a title. I'd been working in that capacity on and off throughout on smaller things. And then around 2010, I decided that's it. I want to cut off the operating. I want to cut, stop doing steady cam. That was the 25 year mark and focus on the cinematography part. And up to that point. So I'd done a, I'd worked on movies here and there as an operator over those years, but I've only shot three films as a cinematographer. And the last one was 10 years ago. And actually, wow. interestingly, my agent just pushed a script 
at me today for he's putting me up for a feature. So who knows? The 10 year mark may be uh, the magic one. I've turned down a number. Good luck. Yeah, there's been a few that I haven't been that interested in. And there's been plenty more that I just haven't gotten. I haven't booked. But most of the work that I do as a cinematographer is episodic TV. And I've shot a lot of those um, over the years. And the favorite of all of those was Keen Peel. Yeah. No, that's what I was going to ask you, because it seems like you became like this comedian go-to uh, cinematographer, even starting with uh, Garfunkel and Oates, who I love. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're great. They're awesome. Which, oh, my God. So funny. And that, again, that's... The expression is, of course, you know, the film industry, it's it's all who you know. But the assumption with that is that who you know means they're going to hook you up or it's just like, you know, it's some like insider baseball thing where they owe you a favor or something and they give you a call. I mean, perfect example, Garfunkel and Oates. I discovered them one day when I was home with the flu, started watching their music videos. Uh, This is uh, more than 10 years ago. And I thought they were amazing. And I was like, these guys are are incredible. And it's actually, oh, it was so cute. I actually told a friend, I'm a little worried because of this. Maybe this flu is maybe crazy in the head. I can't stop watching these videos. What does that mean? <laughs> and my friend said, well, you remember when you were in high school and you listened to albums over and over again? I, I think you've forgotten that's what you used to do when you liked something. You've just gotten so blasé <laughs> that you just watch it yeah. once and move on. You actually like this enough to watch it multiple times. I was like, okay, so I'm not going crazy. Got it. But <laughs> I, I read in the trades that they were doing something for HBO and I called up um, a producer friend of mine who I'd been working with them some other stuff who works with a lot of comedy people, Jonathan Stern. And I said, Hey, you're not by any chance connected with this Garfunkel notes thing. Are you I, complete shot in the dark? He goes, as a matter of fact, I am. Do you want to shoot it? So it's all who, you know, I guess it, he didn't come yeah. to me. I went to him and, and exactly at the right time. And that was that. And that's how I landed that job. Bizarre, right? Oh, my God. And I still listen to all their songs. All those old videos, the same ones you're probably watching, are the same ones that I watch. Like, they did this at, like, uh, I don't even know what. It was. It seemed like the slowest, smallest, like, radio station. And they did, I think it's a 30-minute clip of them doing their songs right. in this, like, little radio studio. And it, they're hilarious. Well, they're doing tons of stuff now, too. Both of them individually are like, oh, yeah, they're working tons. Yeah. And their aesthetic, which I always loved, was smaller, simpler, and and like totally um, low tech. You know, just like the more weird and crappy, the better, the better and funnier it is, you know? And it's funny because. Uh, I actually, you know, their original videos, their couch videos, they called them, which was just the two of them sitting on the sofa singing their songs. At some point, I said, you know, I have a better camera. Do you want to come over my house and we'll shoot a couple in HD? And they're like, okay. So there's two of their couch videos. Shoot, I'll I'll have to come up with the names later. I can't think right now. We're shot at my house. Oh, that's amazing. Which I think is is great. And there's no one else there, no crew. I just set the thing up and they came in and sang two songs and left. That was great. But yeah, so I got to work with them. (laughs) I've I've worked with both of them separately on on a number of different projects over the years. And it's always fun to see them. Wow. And then like right around then, so like right at that same time almost, right? Same year, Key and Peele happened? 
ish yeah yeah uh yeah 2011 2012 yep we did a little baby pilot for comedy central um that was just really down and dirty um with these two guys out of mad tv and the first day of shooting the first thing that we shot the very first scene was i said bitch if you're familiar with that particular sketch that's the first thing that's the opening sketch of the show too yeah is it okay yeah well that's the pilot yeah that was the first day of the pilot so yeah yeah coming right out the gate i remember because i've worked on a number of little pilots and different things i was and i didn't know them i didn't recognize them from anything i hadn't really watched that later mad tv and i was like these guys are funny and this material is so good (laughs) The escalation into the absurd where it goes off into the spaceship at the end. I'm like, this is my humor. And I went, really hope this one goes. I mean, it probably won't because, you know, so many things don't. But but sure enough, we got lucky and it went and we got to make this incredibly low budget first season and a slightly better budget second season. And then all of a sudden it was a hit and the money the, the the volume knob kept turning up just a little bit. But we also got really smart at how to make it. And yeah, we did five seasons of, I think, really high grade sketch comedy. Yeah. When sketch at that time, it was like, who else was doing it really at that time? Like just SNL and I think Mad TV made a a little resurgent because they were off the air for a little bit. But that was like the go to in cable sketch comedy. Uh, I mean, Nick Kroll was doing it was at the same time. And Amy Schumer was just slightly after was that Kroll on already. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Right about right about the same time. I mean, sketch has never really gone away. I yeah. think I think what we were able to do with Key and Peele that I'm very proud of is um, the director, Peter Atencio and I from our first meeting were very much on the same page that we wanted to embrace the source material and elevate the production value and kind of fool the viewer into thinking that they were seeing the real thing until it turned funny. And that all was coming about at a time when what was the vogue in comedy at that moment was really down and dirty, like shot on a camcorder, bad looking camcorder footage. Uh, you know, the, yeah. um, the landlord, do you remember that Will Ferrell uh, landlord uh, thing that he did? Yeah. Adam McKay. And Adam it was McKay, just yeah. like, and everyone went, Oh my God, it's so amazing because it's so low tech. So everyone was shooting like that. And we were kind of on the other side, the two of us going, you know, it'd be great if we went the other direction with it. Um, And we threw it back to, you know, there's only been a few sketch shows historically that did it, but we both referenced the Ben Stiller show, which was on Fox in the early nineties as an example of that. So I was really, uh, it's really my sensibility. I love doing visual parodies and I love reverse engineering uh, something and then figuring out how to make it for a 20th of the budget, you know, a blockbuster movie that costs a hundred million and we're making it a, a version of it <laughs> for comedy central. And, you know, every department jumped on board and it really was, we were, we were all just firing on all cylinders at once. And that's what made that show so special, you know, outside of the fact that they were both so phenomenal as performers and that the writing was so top notch. I mean, it, it was incredible. You know, they wrote four or five times as many sketches per season that we shot. So they literally were writing hundreds of sketches wow. and then distilling it down to you know the best one. So the things that got thrown away on Key and Peele, you know, the sketches that didn't make it, were, there's probably at least as many yeah. as were shot that were as good, you know, it's incredible. Yeah. 
my favorite one, like there's so many favorites, but being our podcast is about sequels was the Gremlins 2 the one. Sequel Doctor. I was about to say. Gremlins. Yeah, that one is genius. Yeah, Grem- is Gre- the, the Gremlins 2. It's so funny. Yeah, Jordan's performance is so off the chain. It's in the movie. <laughs> oh, it's so good. <laughs> oh, man. And then from that, did your connection with like Keegan, because you did Plain House, which another. I did, but that Great was a coincidence. Show. I love yeah. playing house. Yeah, that came through the the producers. It was the same producers as Key and Peel, but that really was a coincidence more than anything else. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, playing house was was uh, was also very funny. Yeah, it was, and then you know there was the next five years. I was doing two to three series a year, uh, all comedy, and just kind of jumping around and doing these little kind of eight week, ten week shoots. Is that what happens when you're, I, I think obviously it happens with actors and I'm sure it happens with like crew. Is it like when they think of you, they're like, this guy can shoot comedy. Is that what yeah. happens? You think? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, I became a comedy DP. I just was orienting myself that direction because I enjoyed working on comedy so much as a camera operator. I was in all kinds of, yes, even though we've talked about the comedies that I worked on, I worked on plenty of dramatic stuff and action. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. And one hour dramas, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I always enjoyed the process of being around comedy. I've always had funny friends and I just kind of, I like the crafting of, uh, of the joke. And so, yeah, I, that it kind of worked out that way. And again, why Keen Peel was so great was because it wasn't just formulaic comedy look. It was every look possible. And what, so I did find myself getting getting typecast into comedy for sure. I thought that key and peel when I emerged from that, I would have been able to break the mold and go, Hey, look, I can shoot anything. I can look at all these different styles. You name a style. I was actually going to have like a, a virtual, like wheel of fortune on my, uh, uh, my website where you can spin it. And it's like, it lands on a different genre and all the clips that would re- relate to that genre would come up. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I, sh- I should have maybe done that. But what was fascinating to me was that talk about, the pigeonholing process going to an extreme. What turned out that I didn't get hired for any single one of those other genres than comedy. I got hired for jobs that covered a lot of genres. So I became the multi-genre DP. Well, if you have a a show that kind of bounces around, there's a bunch of different looks, get that guy because that's how he knows how to do it. But one look, no, 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 no. You can't get Papper to do that. No, no. He doesn't know how to do one look. (laughs) Nuts. Then you get, yeah. Then he goes back to the resume. Be like, you got some things on here, but. Not just one. You can do it all. You have to, but we're only going to hire you to do it all. Yes. No, we get the other guy who can do the one. And I'm like, uh, uh. so, yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> oh, man. And I think one of the other, did you work on Balls of Fury? I did. I did work on Balls of Fury uh, yeah, as a camera operator. I yeah. love that movie. Uh, it's, yeah. Balls of Fury is a lot of fun. And that, that was great because that was the beginning of my working with various people from the cast of the state. Do you remember the show, the state? Oh, okay. The MTV show yeah, yeah, from yeah. the nineties and Tom Lennon and Ben Grant were the, that was a favorite show of mine at that time, which I thought was a great sketch show and getting to work with them. I was very excited and we got along great. And they actually asked me to shoot a pilot for them. We shot a very, very funny pilot called Alabama. That was kind of like Reno nine one one in space. <laughs> which they now show at Comic-Con and things like that to audiences. But it, it 
it really oh, was great. Awesome. It, yeah, it it um, it's a shame we never got to do more of those. But yeah, I've worked with those guys a bunch. And then right after that, I I've worked with most of the members of the state on different things. Um, I was just actually revisiting. Did you ever hear of a show called Burning Love? It's a parody of The Bachelor. Who hosted that? Was that Michael Ian Black? Michael Ian Black was the host. You're right. And uh, yeah. Ken, Ken Marino is the bachelor uh, in the first season. <laughs> yeah. And then they went on to two more seasons after that. So I shot that first season. <laughs> I revisited that actually literally last night because I was recommending it to a friend. I hadn't watched it in years. It's so funny. <laughs> it is so ridiculously funny. And the cast is off the chart. Like the 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 people that are in it, it's like a who's who of comedy today. And we made it oh, for so that. little money so little money and it made it so quickly that was an era 10 years ago where it was an awkward era where there was these corporate web series so you had companies like yahoo and you know everyone was hanging out their little digital banner which was like okay make content yeah. for us for no money uh but we're not gonna you know and we'll take advantage of you and so everyone who was trying to get deals was like okay great jumping on the onto that and we were all working for like pocket money under these terrible conditions, making incredible comedy. There's a lot of things that came out of that era that were so scrappy, but so good. And that was one of them. So I, I which one was that on? That was originally on Yahoo screen, which is now gone. And then it got picked up by oh E. Uh, e repackaged it and showed it within their sort of reality programming as a parody which was kind of brilliant in a way because all these people who are used to watching reality shows watched it and some of them got that it was a comedy and others, I don't know if they got it, but they were actually engaged in the message boards trying to figure out who he should go end up with at the end. And it's like, it's a comedy. <laughs> it, this is real. It's very, very funny. No, it's funny. You're right. When you watch those old shows like that, and you see the people, even think of Reno 911, some of the people that oh, were yeah. the other people on it, you know, the people that would just be there for an episode or two episodes. That That's what's great when you go back and revisit those shows. Well, what's great in the comedy world, especially, is that there are so many people who, if they know they're working with in a great environment, like Reno is was an improvised comedy show. All right. It. They had outlines, but then they would just go. So if you had anybody who was who loved to do improv, that was a goal. That was a great place to visit. And there's so many actors that yeah. enjoyed that process. So they were able to get incredible people to come in and, and, you know, and work on that show. And other, you know, if you knew you're just around in a great creative environment, it was really uh, it was actually a really great time in comedy 10 years ago where people were helping each other out a lot. Actors were showing up. Uh, I mean, Burning Love, you've got Kristen Bell and Malin Ackerman, and there's a huge, oh, wow. a huge celebrity, like an A-list celebrity cameo in the first episode, which I'm not going <laughs> to spoil for anybody if you watch it. But, you know, th these these are people who have massive careers at that moment, and they're just working on this thing for like $100 a day or something <laughs> because they were having so much fun, you know? Yeah that's what's great about comedy. It's not generally going to happen that way in like a horror film or maybe even a, a drama necessarily. I mean, a drama, they might love the script so much that they'll do it, but the drop in of comedy, I think is, uh, is a great lure for creative people. And the shock. Yeah. The shock that, and people like to play, like I, not a lot of times people it's so scripted. You have a director. It's like, okay, this is the line, read this line. But when you have something that you could play loose 
with the yeah. with the words or like reno 91 where it is improvised yeah you can't beat that yep for sure yeah people like to play man improv is like a cult in a way <laughs> so you have those people that are second city or ucb like those connections they're like for life for sure all yeah. those people guests on all their exactly. podcasts or shows whenever yeah that was that yeah. era 10 years ago was really when ucb was you know incredible com- comedy people were just pouring out the doors of it i mean there's second city has always you know been strong with that and the groundlings of course but ucb had its moment then and almost everyone i knew in that group was coming out of ucb in, in these in the shows that i was working on yeah yeah so much talent and they're all doing great and it's amazing to see what everyone's up to now that you know so many of them have their own shows and you know when I did Hell Baby, which was actually once again Lennon and Grant, that was a feature um, we shot ten years yeah. ago. If you look at the cast in that, once again, it's ridiculous. You look at that cast, even at the time we were shooting it, like Rob Corddry and Ricky Lindholm's in there, and Keegan's in there. It's uh, Kamel Nanjiani's doing a small part. It was like <laughs> all these people had their own shows, were developing their own shows, were were you know making their own content, the content that were just all over the place. And it's, I mean, you know. What a what an amazing thing they were able actually able to get together and go to New Orleans and make this funny little movie. You know, Paul Shear, Rob <laughs> Hubel. It's it's ridiculous. Oh, I love Paul. Cast yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and even just perfect segue around that time, you did a few of the Children's Hospital. Mm-hmm. Same group. Which another show. Yeah. Just think of that cat. Like just think yeah. of the people that were on that. Like Henry Winkler's on the show. Like, yeah. Yeah. It was phenomenal. Yep. No, it was great. It was it was great fun. You know, a lot of that stuff was very scrappy. We didn't have much time or money, but the material was was always great, and the, and, and I enjoyed being around uh, that the energy for sure. Yeah. So I know, obviously, right now you're you Keenan, which is awesome. A, a guy that has not stopped working since yeah. he could talk. It seems he yep. loves it. I don't think he'll ever leave SNL. Really. He is so good. He is, yeah, nobody's even close to him when you think of time-wise. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if there's a writer that has been as on that show as long. So it's so cool to see that he obviously got his own series mm-hmm. and the fact that it's a hit. People love it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, he's, he's a lovely guy. The show's a lot of fun. I mean, another great supporting cast. Chris Red, decimatingly funny, you know? Yes. Yeah, so another another great group. And they went to you, they said we need comedy. You know. And they lo- and they looked they looked at you. It's funny there I have a few colleagues and we are like constantly either up for the same shows or trading off shows. They take one takes over for the other and I can't, you know, I Yeah. Uh, I took Keenan, I'd done Black Lady Sketch Show for HBO and then couldn't do and then when I took Keenan, I couldn't come back for their next season. And the DP that came in, Kevin Atkinson, is a guy that I've followed or he's followed me on various jobs. And it's kind of <laughs> like we're there's a little circuit of us for sure. Which is kind of funny. Oh man. So what what would you want to work on? Do you have like a genre that you'd love to shoot? Is action, horror, drama? I love I, I think ultimately it's a version of what key and peel was and i would love to do a big genre movie that is a comedy but it has the tropes of action or you know or something you know 
along those lines. I, it would also be great to do something really dramatic. Um, a feature I shot in the 2000s called The Perfect Sleep, which was a film noir. I look back at that now and I'm like, wow, I shot that? Okay, cool. That doesn't even look like my work because I got to be so dramatic and shadowy and all this stuff that I never get to do anymore. And I'm like, wow, it'd be great to stretch back into that world because, I mean, as you know from watching things these days, it's only getting darker and darker. It's like you can't even see anything in a movie <laughs> half the time anymore. I don't get to do that in comedy. They will not let you. Sh if you can't yeah. see the eyes, it's not funny. So you have to be very lucky to work on a genre comedy that lets you be really dramatic in the lighting. And I haven't gotten to do one of those in a long time. So it'd be fun to to stretch out and do something a little bit more visual. In the meantime, uh, I'm actually playing around with another side of my psyche, which is I've always been a bit of a tinkerer and come up with little bits and pieces and ideas and never had time to act, kind of actualize them. But I actually finally got what I uh, a product that I came up with 12 years ago and as a camera operator is now in production and it's out there selling and I've now being introduced as an inventor, it, which is really fun and weird for me, but I I'm enjoying that a lot. What is it? Is it already out there? It's, it's out there. Yep. We have about a hundred of them out there working on sets. Uh, it's called the ZG, Z-E-E-G-E-E. -E -E. My site is the ZG.com and it's a device that sits on the end of a Steadicam arm and replicates the look of handheld, which might sound really bizarre and backwards, but the idea is that a lot of what is desirable about handheld shooting is this kind of angular motion of the camera sitting on your shoulder, but once people start to walk with it, those footsteps are not as desirable. So the Steadicam arm takes out the footsteps, leaving the part that looks cool because not every, you know, director may not want everything to be super steady. They might want the feel of handheld, Tons of comedy is shot that way. Basically, since The Office in 2000, the last 20 years, we've had tons of comedy is handheld for, you know, for the particular oh, yeah. vibe. A lot of TV shows are shot that way and a lot of movies are shot that way. So what I wanted to do was invent a way to give the camera operator more flexibility. You can move it around your body. It doesn't sit on your shoulder. So you can go higher. You can go lower. You don't even have to wear it a bunch of the time to still get the same look as if you're it's on your shoulder, which is great for people's stamina. It's basically a uh, uh, you know a an all-purpose tool that helps create this look um, in a mechanical fashion. And so, yep, I mean, I Whoa. made one for myself, and then I kind of moved up to shoot to being a DP, and I forgot about it. And an operator bought the prototype for me and started using it, and had great results. And people were raving. And he said, "You got to bring this thing to market." I'm like, I'm so busy. It's hard. How do I do this? Years, <laughs> and then years later, I finally do it. And people are like, where have you been? Where's this been? You know, a, a colleague of mine wow. showed it to, to James Cameron. He said, I wish I had that 10 years ago. And I was like, oh, God, I invented it 12 <laughs> years ago. But, you know, what are you going to do? How'd you invent it? Was it just you made something like at home or... No, I I came up with the idea. I, you know, I napkin sketched it. I took it to a machinist. We went through a few iterations of the prototype. I proved that it would wow. work. I was very inspired by Garrett Brown, who invented the Steadicam, who I got to teach with on those workshops because he invented the Steadicam and the Skycam, which flies over all the football fields and and many other rigs like that. And getting to spend weeks with him at these workshops, asking questions about the inventing process. There's a few sort of key elements of it that kind of crystallized in my mind and and it 
you know, while I'd make little, have, I'd have machinists make me little one-offs and things. Um, one of the things he said is, if you like it, if you want it and you build it and you like it, chances are other people will as well. And it's turning out to be true. So I'm kind of enjoying wearing a different hat at the moment, still in the industry, but being an equipment designer and a kind of a vendor and getting into that. And it's it's pretty neat. It's pretty interesting. Look at that. Take that NYU. <laughs> I guess. Never looked back on that one. No. Look, there's a proud group of yeah. massive group of people who dropped out of NYU. You know, the 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 <laughs> list of successful people in film that that dropped out of that school are, is endless. Sorry, NYU. It's just it did work out that way though. Look, none of them sorry, NYU. <laughs> not every film school, not every school is for everybody. That's just how that goes. Yeah. Well, Charles, what I like to always ask folks is you already answer one of the questions. I always love to ask about like mementos. You have those photos. Is there any other things early on that you, that you keep from set like scripts or a jacket they gave out or anything? Yeah. I mean, they always give us swag at the end of the show and um, I tend, I, I keep it. Um, and some of those early shows, I have a, our crew jacket from American history X, which the camera i actually came up with the idea for what the jacket should be so that's kind of a fun one um nice. i have an entire draw for drawer i'm gonna start that again that's my my mid-atlantic accent okay i have an entire drawer no, it's my wife of, does that too with our daughter yeah. i say don't say that because my wife says draw yeah i i don't know it's it's embarrassing to me i, I say words funny it got stuck somewhere on the airplane on the way from england to the u.s um <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I can pull out this. I have this entire drawer of uh, baseball hats and I don't really wear baseball hats. So I've saved some from so many years ago. Like I have these mint condition 90s era, you know, the, the baseball hat they gave us an office space. Um, I don't think I have one from Major League, nice. but um, I, I have a, a shirt that they gave us from Major League. Yeah. So I have this, this kind of collection of fun stuff. Some of it has gotten very threadbare, but it's kind of fun to pull that out. I'll tell you what's really interesting about it is. Baseball caps have changed their design over the years quite a bit. The actual cap itself. There's been a lot of styles of cap. And I've actually pulled some of those out to show. There was a guy, a friend of mine who is in that business. And I've shown him on Zoom these different hats. And he goes, oh, right. Yeah, that's the, you know, the Excalibur 5-9 with the vaulted seal. Yeah, that was that was like 93 to 97. And I'm like, that's bonkers. But of course, I, this is what I love about it. every industry has its specificity, you know. And capture yeah. absolutely one of them. So that's kind of fun. A lot of the goofier little wrap gifts like keychains and shit like that, I haven't really kept. From Office Space, the invitation to the wrap party was the ID badges that everyone in the office wore. They took Milton's. Do you remember Milton from Office Space, the character yeah, with the stapler? Of course. They took Milton's and made one for everyone on the on the in the crew, everyone they invited. And on the back of it was a sticker that had the address of the and the time of the rap party. But that was how they hand, they handed that out to everybody. So I have this actual genuine article Milton uh, ID badge, which Amazing. is so much fun to have. I actually, from that movie, I took home the hero computer, the Peter's own computer monitor that he's playing Tetris on or something like that. Prop department was selling off stuff after the movie. And I bought this huge, you know, tube computer monitor that we had before flat screens lugged that thing home from austin texas from the shoot and used it for a number of years and then when i tried to put it on ebay i was like the actual monitor from office space and people are like how do you prove that and i'm like oh shoot i don't 
Look, yeah. I worked on the movie. I'm telling you it is. And they're like, yeah, it's just a computer monitor. I, I, I was really bummed about that. Should have had it signed. Didn't think of it. Yeah, you should have everybody sign it. Oh, man. That's such a classic movie. Like, that movie stands the test of time. And then the other question is, obviously, you were hooked. You knew this was your future, that you were going to be doing what you've been doing. But was there anything else that almost was another career that you chased? Well, I was a musician growing up and I got very serious about music in high school and played in bands all through my twenties, which approached a certain level of success, not national at all, but some regional successes. And I was kind of like nice living a dual life in my twenties where I was shooting by day and, and playing music at night which got really crazy sometimes where I'd have like no sleep between the two. <laughs> but towards the end of my twenties, I realized I couldn't really do both. And when I look, I took a long, hard look at the balance sheet, how much I made as a musician versus how much I was making, you know, working in the film industry, even in Boston, even before I started getting on the big shows, which was like five times as much as I was making in Boston. I was kind of like, okay, this is probably not that smart financially, but also, um, <laughs> I in my heart, I really felt professionally I wanted to work in the film industry, and I enjoyed music. But the more I became a professional musician, the less I liked it. Uh, I realized I didn't have it in me to do what that means to to be a sax player, which is what I was going out on the road and playing the same. You were songs. a sax player? Oh yeah. man, I was gonna guess. I was gonna be way off. Oh really? What were you thinking? I was thinking just guitar, but you know what? Now sax makes sense because very smooth and steady cam operator you have to be very smooth so someone once pointed out to me in that era she said you gotta you have a thing about a bunch of metal hanging off the front of your body that you express yourself through and i'm like (laughs) wow you're accurate that is both steady cam and a saxophone you're absolutely right super weird i I don't know what that is why why the sax how did that start was it Listening to Foreigner or <laughs> Foreigner. Awesome. No, it was well before that. But, <laughs> you know, look, everyone starts in grade school. You sort of get assigned an instrument. You know, for me, it was clarinet. Yeah, that's true. And then I quickly realized the cooler version of clarinet was the sax because I wanted to play jazz. And so I got into into the sax in high school and got, like I said, I got pretty damn good at it by the end of high school. And then uh, it's been, a, it slowly declined over the years when I, when all I was doing was playing in bar bands and it was all about volume where kind of like, I couldn't even hear myself. I was just, you start hitting high notes just to yeah. be heard. You know, it's just a showmanship thing at that point. But I sometimes think about what if any of those bands have really hit it big, it would have been interesting to have had that couple of years on the road vibe. You know, we were opening for bands that were, that got big and we had, our friends were striking it, you know, especially in the, in the grunge era. That's when I was doing a lot of my playing. And I was not playing in grunge bands with a sax. I can assure you of that. Yeah, no. <laughs> the uh, You still so have a sax? I have all my saxes. I have three of them. Yeah. I have three of them. For you sure. still play? A, a tiny bit. A, a little tiny bit. The most recent was over pandemic. My friend David Wayne, another member of the state, very prolific film director. Yeah. Wet Hot American Summer, right? He he's, did an amazing yes. thing on YouTube, which you can look up, called C-Cars, C-C-A-R-S, where he did covers of well-known songs by reaching out to his friends who were either musicians or 
comedy actors or both. And each one would play an instrument and he edited it all together. And it's like this great little montage of video. And it's, it's a lot of fun to watch those. And he tapped me to do a single sax line in one of those. I played all of three or four notes, but uh, that was, it was great. <laughs> Fred Armisen is singing the verse right before that. And uh, it was cool to nice. be part of that. But of course we were all doing it from home. It was during, it was 2020. So we were quarantined and yeah. uh, it was a, it was a way to pass the time. So that was the last time I actually <laughs> got the horn out and played in front of people for sure. But hopefully uh, again, foreigner Urgil was my dad's favorite song. And when it would come on in the car, he would do, he would like almost like stop the car sometimes just to listen and to that. Just saxophone. like start getting into air, air saxophoning. That's, that's what he would do. I did respect the super high notes at the end of that one. That was, that was pretty solid and ballsy. Yeah. I always <laughs> wondered if whoever the sax player was touring was like, Oh, great. I got to do that every, every night. Okay, fine. Uh, Charles, man, this has been great. Yeah. Thanks so much. It's been a lovely chat. There's my English. No, I just love talking. I love that trip down. <laughs> and see, look at that comes out every song. You lovely... have the Boston come out, and then you have that come out. Oh, Doug, it's been a lovely chat, hasn't it? Yep, a little, a little of all of it. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's fun. It's fun, and I uh, we didn't talk much about Major League, but that's okay. Who knows what there was to talk about? Yeah, no, I like I said, I, I yeah, no, the conversation is really not about that. I think that like shocked people. Like when I talked to Eric Roberts, I think he was interested. He thought I was going to be like, so remember in scene seven right, of right, Runaway right. Train or some movie. And I think the people appreciate that you don't ask about those movies. Cause I've interviewed people that like, uh, man, I don't know if you ever watched, were you a Star Trek fan at all? Yeah. Like Voyager or original series mostly, but yeah. Okay, well, I talked to Tim Ross, who is Tuvik, on, so he was like, that's all I talk about, I don't want to talk about it, and I'm like, that's totally fine, like, I wasn't going to do that anyway, and uh, I think people respect that, because I'm sure that's what people get, like, that are in, like, one-hit movies, like, one cult classic, and it's like... It's the same questions. Yeah, yeah, I totally get that. So there we go. Uh, Well, awesome, Charles. Good luck. I hope that the script that your agent gave you is... uh, what you want we shall see we'll find out hopefully it'll be good news man i love talking to charles how great was the story about the office space computer that he bought that and then he tried to sell it online and he was like no it was in the movie and they're like how how should we why should we believe you and he's like oh you're right you know what i should get somebody to sign it so oh man man charles was great and i love the evolution of his career and just uh, like, again, he said, like these situations, he's staying at a buddy's house. Hey, I can't do this. American History X. And then he is sick with the flu. He calls up. He's like, Garfunkel and Oates. Oh, they're, I, I looked online. They're getting the deal at HBO. I call some guy I know there. Boom. And then he's the cinematographer on that. And he shot a couple of those videos. I got to ask him which songs because, man, I love listening to them. And just so much more key and peel. The guy's so great. I hope, fingers crossed, I hope you guys cross your fingers, not if you're driving, but that he that w- the script that they gave to him, that he is able to get it. If it's something that he loves, of course, because we want Charles happy. <laughs> Thank you, Charles. And uh, your homework, Major League 3, it's baseball season. Why not watch them all? But make sure you watch Major League 3. Scott Bakula, the, uh, Jensen Daggett. So we're getting somebody from... You know, Jason takes Manhattan. What? And just so many more people are back in this movie from the first two. Lots of fun. 
So don't forget to review, rate, share our podcast, follow us on all social media at Sequels Only, and don't forget to check out our website, sequelsonly.com. Good night.